Hello, my name is Neil Ferguson. I'm the Milbank Family Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution, and I also chair the Hoover History Working Group. And today we've been very fortunate indeed to have heard a brilliant presentation by Beatrice de Graff, prof distinguished professor at the University of Utrecht uh, uh, in the Netherlands, and the author of a most fascinating book, Fighting Terror After Napoleon, How Europe Became Secure After 1815, Beatrice, welcome uh, to the Hoover Institution. You are, I think, the very model of an applied historian in my sense of the word. You do extraordinarily impressive scholarly work, in this case on the early 19th century, but you're also interested in the recent past, indeed the contemporary world. And I want to begin with a very big question about this book. What can we learn from this book about the kind of problems we face when it comes to making Europe secure today? Yes, thank you so much, Neil, for the invitation and the generous introduction. Um, and also for the fact that here, that you also combine the two types of history. Um, the thing is, with the current plight we're in, in, in Europe, security-wise, is that we have lost track. We have lost sight of the fact that collective security in Europe can only work if the big powers in Europe, the first-rank powers, as they call them themselves, work together, and if those first-rank powers of Europe also give each other the credits of being first-rank powers. They may not like each other, they may even hate each other, they need to give each other the credits. And what we're now in is the situation where the powers in Europe and beyond, with China and the United States as well, do not want to consider each other first-rank powers anymore. And uh, one of those main tenets of the symmetry that was invented, uh, the symmetry in peacetime, not just coming together as coalitions to fight Napoleon, but remaining there in conferences, uh, talking to each other in symmetry situations, um, was invented at the Congress of Vienna, at the Allied Commission in Paris. And um, that we've sort of lost track, lost out of sight, that you need those first-rank powers to keep working together. One of the points you make uh, in fighting terror after Napoleon is that there was a very explicit hierarchy of powers uh, at the Congress of Vienna. Talk a little bit about that, because clearly we don't have that kind of hierarchy in the international system today. In fact, we, we completely pretend there isn't a hierarchy, whether it's in the UN General Assembly or at the European Union levels. Talk about the hierarchy of powers yes. in 1815. Let me state up front, and I just was expressing uh, the notion of first rank powers, I sort of heard in my head, this is not what I think of, I would condone. And I think, and this is a struggle that we have to face and perhaps have to discuss uh, uh, at the high level uh, sessions, because we may think and we may consider the ranking of nations all according to the same uh, criteria, according on a par, uh, as being reasonable and modern, etc. But it doesn't work that way. I mean, the world still is being ruled by great powers. And uh, at least back in 1815, up until 1918, up until the Congress of Versailles, the Treaty of Versailles, the powers at least had a way of reckoning with that hierarchy. And the hierarchy was, it was invented by uh, Pitt the Younger and Alexander I, so the Russians and the Britons together, it was reinvigorated uh, in 1815. There's four ranks. First rank is the great powers, back then Russia, Prussia, Austria and um, France? Fra uh, well, no, no, no France no, no, no. was in the losing uh, side. And Britain, and Britain. Yes. And only in 1818, France was also invited right. back to the fold of so five great powers. The second rank powers is the powers uh, that are the satellites that uh, have to kind of pay attention to the first rank powers, Spain, Portugal, uh, the Netherlands, um, 
um, uh, Bavaria, uh, the countries like that. And then the third rank powers, the smaller Italian states, smaller German states, uh, uh, Scandinavian states, they were, they sh in the words of the, the diplomats back then, they should be glad that they would be granted independence at all. And then uh, there were also countries considered, which was of course very detrimental to the situation outside of the family of nations. So the United States was not invited in China, Japan, neither were they nor to speak of the Ottoman Empire. So in this hierarchical world where there are the, the great powers, great mainly in terms of their military capability. And the resources. And, and the resources that yeah. finance their, their military capability. There's a sense that France has been the bad boy uh, because of so. its revolution and then Napoleon's tyranny. And the point of the, the, the Congress and the subsequent meetings of the great powers is to put a stop to that. Tell me exactly what the design was. How do you solve a problem like revolutionary France? Yes, well, first of all, um, just a paper treaty doesn't work. So Immanuel Kant's World Peace Situation Federation, even the Congress of uh, Vienna paper treaty uh, would not work, would not suffice to bring back the world and France to peaceful habits. And we saw that because Napoleon returned. So the fact that Napoleon returned put everything on a different footing. So when he returned the 7th March of 1815, a week later, a treaty was concluded, the Treaty on Mutual Security, could argue that it was the first treaty on collective security in peacetime, and it argued that the world needed to be brought back to say, uh, uh, peaceful habits by means of a pledge of those countries together, not just in paper, but also in stone, fortresses needed to be built, and also in um, teeth, in bayonets, men on the ground, boots on the ground. So what happened was that the Allied powers together invaded France, didn't go home after the armistice was concluded, but stayed there, occupied France, and made sure that France was debonapartized, uh, demilitarized, uh, uh, stabilized, and um, that, 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 that a kind of stable rule was implemented. And the, the other point was that the revolution, the terror, also brought to a stop. And then when they managed to do so in their own eyes, they felt that they could now spread this over the rest of Europe and even beyond that. And the principles were, or perhaps we could bring it down, well down to one principle that was being mentioned all the time, moderation. So the Allied Commission was a commission that only had a thin ideology. So the liberals, Britain, uh, the second rank nations that were also quite liberal, like the Netherlands, um, um, and later on after 1830, France was also part of this. Um, those countries worked together, but they did not want to impose their ideology too strongly on the other nations. It was a thin ideology. It needed to be moderate, not extreme. So no extremism, neither reactionary extremism nor to revolutionary extremisms. And this meant that war needed to be avoided and terror needed to be avoided. And reparations were imposed on yes. the defeated uh, French. Now, we tend to think of that as an instrument that went terribly wrong after the First World War, uh, when it was part of the Versailles uh, Treaty that, that ended uh, the war with Germany. But reparations in this case seem to have worked out much better. Uh, why was that? That was the fourth principle, the dédommagement, the reparations indeed. Well, that's also very interesting because um, Rave Blaufarb in his book, The Great Demarcation, has explained that after the French Revolution, after the Napoleonic Wars, 
a new kind of system of property holders, a system of capitalism emerged. It was already, of course, uh, uh, in the Nashit version present, but um, there was a quite, quite strict separation between what the government owned and what the citizens owned. And those hybrid versions of clerical, of government, governmental lands were now solved, which also meant that there was a new elite of bankers, of investors, of property holders that also sort of wanted to have a share in the peace and at least wanted to prevent another revolution upturning. And the landed interests were very big after 1815. They wanted to prevent another revolution from happening. So they wanted to make sure that France would pay dearly for its sins and that it would not resort to another revolution in order out of fear to pay uh, uh, more reparations. So it was a new system resting on capitalist securities, financial securities. And when France had to pay all these reputation and defaulted, it could not just pay the money because the coffers were empty. Uh, the bankers of Europe were invited to the table, the Rothschilds, you know, about them, uh, but also the Barings, uh, the Lafitte's, uh, the German bankers, everyone who wanted to play with, uh, with them. They were invited to the table in Paris, chaired by the Duke of Wellington, and they were told that there would now be invented a system of European bonds and everyone could buy a share in the peace of France with the Allied army as a kind of safeguard. So it was a very good way to invest your money in. And actually it was a quite successful sh uh, scheme, so successful that within three, four years, all the payments were being made. So one can only imagine if after 1918, all the bankers of Europe would have come together and helped Germany with these bonds. This was of course discussed but did not happen. Why not? Uh, well, this is one of the questions I remember working on very early in my career. It's a long story. John Maynard Keynes plays an interesting yeah. part. L let me uh, uh, try to sum this up. In many ways, the world of 200 plus years ago is not so different. You have a European Commission, which is trying to work out European order. Uh, you have a bond market, which is there to finance uh, the operations of uh, the various governments. And you have the specter of terror. And that's where I want to end this conversation. Uh, there's been a debate about whether you're using the term terror in an anachronistic way. Uh, is, that, is that a fair criticism? Um, no, not at all, because if you look closely at the references and the way I go to the sources, terror was the buzzword. So I just mentioned moderation before. It was actually a pair. It was the opposite pair, the juxtaposed pair, the, 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 the vectors that put this whole system in motion. So on the one hand, you had the moderation. That was the thing that the peoples of Europe craved for after all those years of trauma, devastation, destruction, five million people dead. And uh, the origins of that mayhem were terror. And terror was a kind of a two-headed monster, bicephalous monster. On the one hand, it was the terror of the revolutionaries against the non-state agents. Uh, but on the other hand, it was the terror when those revolutionaries took over, the terror in the hands of the state itself. It was Napoleon, it was the armed Jacobinism. So the terror was both something that could happen through revolution and then in the hands of state armies, for example, would be unleashed uh, against the rest of the world. So that was terror and in a similar way we still use that phrase now and it was born not just out of uh, the, the revolutionary terror of Robespierre but also of the terror of Napoleon's armies in Europe. And does that mean that, that in that period immediately after uh, the Battle of Waterloo the, the statesmen and the property uh, elites of Europe exactly. are worried about terrorists or is that something different? No, that's true, because terrorists formerly were the ones that voted in the Convention for the uh, beheading of, of, of King Louis. But 
after 1815 was also used for people who tried to shoot Wellington, for example, commit, tried to commit attacks on Friedrich Wilhelm, and the heads of states also corresponded with each other on terrorism. So it was an early way of, of dealing with terrorism similar to we do it today. Of course, you need to follow the trajectory, the genealogy. It, was, it wasn't considered a specific tactic as we consider it today. Uh, but for example, um, uh, hellish machines were already mentioned, not the dynamite that came only later, but still. And what's, what's also, I think, very important, and we tend to forget about it, terror was already en vogue as a noma uh, around 1800, but it had always, always been something, it was considered a kind of a benign instrument in the hands of a righteous ruler. So you, as an obedient citizen, could be grateful if you had a ruler who would instill fear in the hearts of his enemies. So terror was the Timor Dei, the terror Dei, the king as the divine agent. It's a kind of a translation of the godly power was able to wield terror against his enemies. So Quite Ivan biblical. The, Ivan the Terrible wasn't really right. uh, a, a critical uh, it monarch. It was terrible against his enemies. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, and then came the French Revolution and terror became secularized. And now it was not just the instrument in the hands of a legitimate divine king, it was an instrument in the hands of the masses. And now it was something to be terrified for. Metternich himself, his family, had lost all their property in the Rhenish lands because of the terror. So for them, terror was not just people killing each other, it was perhaps they were even more afraid of the upending of all values, to, to, to speak with Nietzsche. And uh, revolutionizing meant taking away all the property of the people. That was the real terror. Well, nothing illustrates better the relevance of uh, early 19th century history to our own times than, uh, than your book and the presentation that you just uh, gave us. I know that you're working on a separate project on, on contemporary terrorism. That's a very different kind of project. Maybe say a few words about how you're, how you're approaching that and what you hope to find out. Yeah, I have these two tracks, uh, the more hermeneutical history and the history for today and a project that I've been working on during the times of the pandemic when the archives were closed, the prisons were not. So I was able, strangely enough, to visit prisons uh, in the Netherlands and go to Indonesia and interview the terrorists themselves and try to engage them in a conversation uh, what they believed, what were their extreme beliefs and how did they formulate and, and pin them. And that's a book with an historical perspective because they tell historical stories as well. The Indonesian terrorists did, the Dutch terrorists did, the Syrian ones. And that will come out uh, uh, hopefully somewhere next year at Oxford University Press as Radical Redemption. Well, Radical Redemption sounds like an equally exciting book, albeit a completely different one methodologically. And we hope that you yes. will come back to the Hoover Institution and talk about that book when it's uh, published by Oxford. Uh, it's been a huge pleasure to have uh, Beatrice Graf here with us. Uh, I hope, as I said, that she'll come back at some point and present her new book. Uh, that's all we have time for now. Uh, as I said, uh, the Hoover History Working Group has been very fortunate to hear her talk about fighting terror after Napoleon, how Europe became secure after 1815. Beatrice, thanks very much. Thank you, Neil.